Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. We uh, delightfully do so with our good buddy, my good buddy, Hugh Hallman. He is the former mayor of Tempe. He is an attorney. He is an educator. He is a uh, civic um, activist of sorts, and he just helped me uh, in something uh, in a business I, I've been in for I don't know how many years, 18 years. He just fixed my microphone. <laughs> so, Hugh, thank you for the third hour. Uh, I, I, in this way, sort of feel like I was serving uh, as a Bob Dole repairman. No, it was great. It was. Uh, it's called Mike Discipline uh, in the industry, for, and uh, I don't have any, and you well, just gave it to me. So you've, thank you. you've been a Mike denier for years. <laughs> I'm a Mike denier, Mike Discipline denier, an extreme Mike Discipline denier. Hugh, a little something different I wanted to do with you uh, today, if I could. In years past... In years past, November 22nd was a date that kind of rang familiar to everyone, kind of like 9-11, kind of like December 7th used to. I don't know if December 7th does as much anymore. I don't think it does. Clearly, 11-22 doesn't. Um, but it was up until about five years ago, everyone knew it as the day John Kennedy was killed. And uh, you and I are both too young. I mean, I wasn't born yet, and you're probably were just about born, I'm guessing, give or take, without exposing. A year and a half earlier, okay. yes. No, I'm 60. Okay. I got that. I'll be 61 in January. All right. So 1963, um, I asked my parents about it, and there's some interesting political analogs to today I want to get into with you about it. But I asked my parents about it, and they said the thing they remember watching was when um, Jack Ruby shot Oswald live. They said, Almost everyone saw that. I bet your parents would have. Um, but there's a lot that's interesting about it beyond the speculations and conspiracy theories. Uh, there's a lot about how much the immediate analysis of it got wrong. And, and I was potentially sh- intentionally so. Yeah, I think so. And it gets us to this tossing around too casually of extreme words like racist or fascist or supremacist, white supremacist. Um, because that was happening then. That was happening then, and they got it wrong then, too. Uh, we were both intrigued by the theory and thesis of Jim Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N for the audience that wants to look at his works. Jim or James Pearson, P-I-E-R-S-O-N, great historian, uh, formerly the head of the Olin Foundation. Um, his thesis is the left was never the same and liberalism was never the same because they didn't know what to do with the fact that was concluded by the Warren Commission, which was that Oswald was a communist. And driven by his arguably hate and disgust for Jack Kennedy, John Kennedy, because of Kennedy's approach to the Soviet Union and ultimately things like the Cuba Missile Crisis and other very hard-nosed approaches. I mean, John Kennedy is perhaps the last president until Ronald Reagan, who really understood how to deal with Soviets. Ultimately, ironically, here we are, Donald Trump understood that as well and was equally excoriated by the left for somehow cozying to them. And uh, yet the hard-nosed approach kept the Soviet Union, or now Russia, from uh, exerting greater influence. It was Barack Obama 
that managed things that allowed the Soviet Union, Russia, yes, I'm calling it the Soviet Union because, frankly, that's what Vladimir Putin is trying to recreate, not as as a communist, but as a totalitarian regime. And it was the reset button by Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2009, immediately after the election. It was then tanks rolling into Crimea with no response. That's the left's problem. And the apologists from the left who uh, who traffic uh, uh, in in Soviet concepts, communism and socialism, totalitarianism, that ultimately, in my view, is the uh, unintended, perhaps, but logical end to the application of that philosophy. Uh, socialism ultimately is taking property from one person who made it uh, and giving it to someone else. Uh, who needs it in the you in work all eight Lincoln said that's correct isn't it funny that Abraham Same Lincoln idea. understood that slavery was taking uh, the efforts of a human being and then turning them over to someone else and no one on the left sees that analogy without their consent yes without their right. consent yeah. correct right. and uh, that the consent of the governed has been. Uh, pushed aside a bit as we increasingly exert government power. So a little off track here, but here we are with Kennedy's assassination and the the anniversary of that um, looming. It is today. It is lost by the left because John Kennedy stood for conservative principles that they absolutely do not want to continue to give voice to and ultimately was shot by a communist and they don't want to admit that. Yeah, indeed. I'll reprise, if I can, some of what I was reading from Jim Pearson's piece. Uh, James Reston of The New York Times, what would his equivalent be today? Like a like a Friedman? I mean, he was as famous as they got as a columnist. He was like the Thomas Friedman of the day, maybe, or, or something like that. James Reston, then ch- chief political correspondent for The New York Times, published a front-page column the day after the assassination with the title, quote, Why America Weeps, Kennedy, a victim of violent streak he sought to curb in nation, close quote. Earl Warren, before he was nominated to head the commission to investigate it, said the shooting was the result of bigotry. Syndicated newspaper columnist Drew Pearson, who would be the equivalent of, I can't imagine, uh, name, insert famous liberal columnist today. Uh, Syndicated newspaper columnist Drew Pearson wrote that JFK was the victim of a hate drive. Senator Mike Mansfield, in his eulogy, said that John Kennedy was killed because of bigotry, hatred, and prejudice. I find it interesting. Let me add. Yeah, please. And that, that was tied to their effort to say that Kennedy was shot because of people on the right mm-hmm. who did not want schools to be segregated, who did not want races to mix, who did not want any of those kinds of social changes that ultimately came about, not because of John Kennedy, but because of people like Barry Goldwater, who was one of the people pointed to as these racist right-wing wackos. And yet it was Barry Goldwater, two years before Brown v. Board, who uh, uh, advocated for and caused the desegregations of schools in Arizona. It was Barry Goldwater who caused the desegregation of the Arizona National Guard two years before the federal government. And Sky Harbor, right? And Sky Harbor. Right. right. All of those kinds of things are examples of a true, and I know you don't like this word necessarily, libertarian approach, that all human beings are created equal and meaning it. 
and that uh, Lincoln would go to war over it and that Barry Goldwater would risk his political career. And yet no good deed goes unpunished. He gets pointed out as the cause of the hate that gave rise to John Kennedy's being shot because the left did not want to admit that John Kennedy was shot by a communist mad about how John Kennedy approached the Soviet Union. And was trying to take out Castro, right? You had mentioned, uh, you had mentioned, I think, the Bay of Pigs. A Soviet spokesman indeed said, quote, Senator Barry Goldwater and other extremists on the right could not escape moral responsibility for the president's death. What this makes, uh, what, what this means to me that's so interesting is that the left still plays that game. Every time there is some act of violence before any um, any facts are known, it's immediately uh, blamed on the entirety of the conservative movement. Er Eric Erickson, a a conservative, writes, after Elizabeth Warren and other Democrats said Christian pregnancy centers are a threat to women and should be shut down, more than 50 were attacked and firebombed. Not a single Democrat lawmaker hinted that the remarks could have sparked those attacks. Prominent progressives explicitly said that people were going to die because Republicans wanted to reform Obamacare. James Lee Hodgkinson took them literally and attempted to murder a bunch of Republican congressmen on a baseball field, shooting Steve Scalise. Not a single Democrat suggested a correlation between the rhetoric and the attack. We're seeing this again with this nightclub shooting and uh, attributing it to uh, concerns about and speeches and efforts against uh, 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 drag queen shows and things like that. It's a very handy trick the left has been able to use. I hesitate to say the word weaponize, but it's a very handy trick the left has been able to use to try and shut down conservative speech or Republican debate by every time the act of a madman. It's it's in some respects the um, the vetoes, the the, the heckler's veto, isn't it? Uh, That because one insane person acts in a partisan Uh, perhaps a partisan or ideological way. It's the entire responsibility of that entire ideology. And it seems to only work in one direction. This is how the Democrats in the last weeks of the campaign weaponized so much of the language with a vote for the Republican Party is a vote for the end of democracy. You hear the music. Let me get your thoughts on that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're concerned with stock market volatility, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. A portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly and there are no fees. You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. And there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's an investment in a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate, up to 10.25% rate of return. That's right, 10.25%. Why Refi, a due diligence approved firm, can be checked out by looking them up at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34, 888-YREFI-34. Mr. Hallman, Hugh, I, uh, I was talking about how the left weaponizes every um, every insane act or even if it's an act from within their own ideological precincts as attributable and the responsibility of the right. They've been doing this probably since the JFK assassination. We were giving some of the receipts on that uh, in the previous segment. And it's an 
awfully, uh, awfully cynical way, I think, to run a country. It's almost as if they want a party purge. It's almost as if they believe in a uniparty system in America. It's almost as if they believe Republicans shouldn't coexist with them in America. I think some of us feel that way sometimes. Well, I certainly do more often these days, listening to the news feeds, as you discussed about the shooting, uh, Colorado shooting. Um, You had uh, interviews of people in San Francisco at a at a uh, candlelight vigil talking about the fact that this is clearly done by someone who hates us, who doesn't think we should exist, and it's entirely from the right wing, and they're trying to pass legislation to outlaw us, et cetera, those kinds of themes. And it's frequent and often, uh, frequent and often, it's frequent and repeated in a way that... Uh, tries to marginalize opposing voices. And yet, as a contrast, the summer of love, the summer of 2020, when huge chunks of our country are attacked by uh, um, peace-loving people who destroy uh, the storefronts at Scottsdale Fashion Square, burn the courthouse where one is to Uh, seek one's civil rights enforced in Portland, Oregon, and many, many other heinous acts, all in the uh, voice and and, uh, under the banner that black lives matter. And the left says that that was, quote, mostly peaceful, unquote. And you've often said, and it is brilliant insight, that we really need to make Orwell fiction again, because taking the messaging and turning it into weapons and weaponizing uh, that language such that violence is now peaceful protest, peaceful protest is violence, and it depends on which side of the spectrum you're on, how you get tagged with those, those banners. That is a very disturbing trend, and it continues. And what's interesting is, note the number of citations you made in the last segment to people from the media advertising and proclaiming that John F. Kennedy was murdered because of people on the right and their views about race and other things, when in fact he was murdered by a leftist who was mad about his treatment of the Soviet Union. An avowed communist who'd lived in the Soviet Union for two years returned to the U.S. with his wife because life in the Soviet Union wasn't as happy as he he thought it should be, and yet glossed over the notion that the, the logical end of the application of communism and socialism, its handmaiden, socialism being the economic side of communism and communism itself interlacing the political control that you're talking about, a single party control with only one group of people allowed to dictate philosophy and assuring that when they use that power over time, those who disagree with them are put out of their misery in one form or another. They're treated to uh, insane asylums because they are deemed to be clearly insane based on their political views or, as Stalin did, out and out murdered. When I speak to people now who who foment socialism and talk about the Soviet Union with wistful uh, eyes, 
they all still today say, well, it was in the execution, as if, and that's no pun intended, it's as if that entire political philosophy and economic philosophy can be separated from the logical end of its application. How does one think that when you decide that some human being is less than human, their ideas are less than worthy, and that they can be forced to work for you for free so that their their uh, their benefits that they create can be supplied to people you like better, why do they think that that is not ultimately the reincarnation of slavery, the very thing that a Republican, Abraham Lincoln, sought to stop? It it boggles the mind how the logic works in this instance. And so, so, so it's 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 not that we should be blamed for being concerned about this because we're seeing it happen again. You know, the interesting well, thing. Yes, you are. You're a conspiracy theorist. Well, you must be known as a conspiracy theorist here. That's kind of that's kind of another label they throw around to shut you up, isn't it? Um, when we kind of look. Um, we kind of look for the actual, the surface explanation rather than their convoluted one. It's odd that we're the conspiracy theorist. To wit, take the riots of 2020 or what did you call it? The summer of love, the summer of love of 2020. 30 people killed, 14,000 people arrested, mostly peaceful, don't you know, um, all over and ignited by uh, an aberrant and awful killing of one man uh, in um in uh, Minneapolis, not condoned by either of us or anyone or anyone that I know of, not condoned by anyone. Um, and and when we pointed out, look, we want to all ensure that the police, which is the apparatus of the state, are acting in goodwill and good faith. While we all want that, shame on us for marching under a Marxist banner. Marxist banner, you say? Yes. The founders of the Black Lives Matter movement were vocal and vociferous about the fact that they were trained Marxists. They said it. It is not a pejorative, it is not a criticism to call someone by what they call themselves. And so when so many of us were issuing disgust both at the philosophy and the need for us to genuflect before it, lest we be called racist, on the one hand, and opposing the violence on the other, we were dismissed as uh, radicals. We were dismissed as the radicals. Marxism has, in some interesting ways here, uh, I think, taken a, ho- a root and a hold of 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 a consensus of a consensus philosophy that it never used to have. This is all new within the past six years, and it's not only Marxism as. It's expressed and Marxism as it's identified, but as it's practice for those that tell us, well, the Soviet Union just didn't do it well enough. They seem to know better than all those trained Marxists in the Soviet Union. They seem to know better than all those trained Maoists in China. They seem to be the only ones who have figured out a way that it can work. And yet they engage in the same exact practice of all those failures. If you think the way we do, if you are not conscious raised or enlightened enough You must be insane. Thank goodness for philosopher kings. Exactly right. Let me pick up on that with you when we come right back. Hugh Hallman is our guest, as he is every Tuesday. We're talking uh, about the anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, which took place on this day in 1963. Probably right about this time, most Arizonans would have been learning about it. And there's a famous little uh, colloquy between someone I quote on this show a lot, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. 
He was an assistant in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. He later worked for Richard Nixon. Uh, He later became the ambassador to the United Nations under Jerry Ford. And then he became a U.S. senator for many years from New York. All the same man, really quite an eyewitness and practitioner in history. And one of the Washington Post columnists turned to him after the Kennedy assassination and said, uh, we will never laugh again after after November 22nd, 1963. Moynihan said, oh, we'll laugh again. We'll just never be young again. I think what he meant is something of the innocence of this country was irreparably changed on that day. And when you look at the trajectory of the rest of the 60s, it was a very, very, very unhappy rest of the decade. Um, From a lot of riots to the outgrowth of the Weathermen, certainly the Black Panthers, the assassination of King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Um, it 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 was a lousy end of the decade. And I think that's what he was getting at. It was something that so disrupted us. I'm not sure if we ever truly still have yet recovered. You can go to areas of Washington, D.C. I know you've been there. Um, And I suspect you can go to areas of Detroit. I know you can go to areas of Los Angeles where those riots effects from the 60s are still are are still with us from the bombed out appearance of neighborhoods. In fact, what what I find interesting about that moment in time and, and Moynihan's observation that we lost our innocence, that uh, we could no longer be naive, was truly the country's response. And I do think it is to that moment in time. You've given a list of horrible events that occurred as a result. Um, What I use as the cleanest and clearest demonstration of how much our society changed immediately after that is to look at high school yearbooks. Oh, interesting. Go from 1960 and the photographs that were taken uh, in early 64, and you see young men and women dressed in their Sunday best, let's say. And the following year, it's pandemonium Uh because that sense that the prior generation had let everyone down, that what they stood for should be thrown out in its entirety— and you see the absence of ties on young men or dresses on young women, you can hate that sort of appearance. But it is a marker that took us from one era and sense of being to an entirely different sense of being. And that that libertarian free-to-be-me effort demonstrated no limits. And I think we're still suffering from that part, that you and I would agree that with rights come obligations, mm-hmm. and that it is uh, the the Bill of Rights is premised on a notion of how human beings will behave within this contract of society. And if you do not have that common ground, another subject for another day, perhaps, but we have lost and did lose and began losing at that moment the common social threads that allowed us to have conversation and engage in discussions. What we are suffering today in an inability to have common conversations to resolve our social problems and our societal problems can be traced back to that moment. That's when it became no longer or began to become no longer appropriate to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the start of the day. It's when we began to fail to note President's Day. Well, it was not President's Day. It was Washington's birthday and ultimately Lincoln's birthdays. For different reasons, Lincoln, 
I've mentioned before, was known around the world for what he had done and the principles for which he had stood, that um, Tolstoy writes a story about meeting someone in the Caucasus who brings him into his yurt and asks him to tell him about this man, Lincoln. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is a re- there is a reason that Yul Brenner makes that point and speaks the way he does in The King and I, uh, because there, that was such a moment in history. And then to have that happen yet again with John F. Kennedy in the opposite direction and lead to uncontrolled uh, personal expression without understanding that that right and opportunity comes at a price and that price has to be paid at some point, either by paying homage to why that exists and is allowed or not understanding and ultimately resulting in the loss of the society in which those freedoms exist. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is our guest. Hugh, um, you, you, you made some really important points about what changed after 1963, after November 22nd, 1963, in our country and in our culture. And it's interesting. I want to tie it to what you and I were talking about before the hour started during the uh, top of the hour break, which was about the kinds of lies we get used to from our politicians. So, for example... And our news media. Yeah, and our news media. You were saying, you know, when Joe Biden was inaugurated, he was all about unity, a president of Red America, the president of Blue America. There's no Red America. There's no Blue America. He was going to be our great unifier in chief. And it was all nonsense, or it turned out all to be nonsense. Those of us who had followed his career knew that that would be the case. This is the same man who said of Mitt Romney, the kind of Republican we're supposed to always be promoting, that to a black audience, Mitt Romney wants to put you all back in chains. That's the Joe Biden of unity. Um, There are those that mean it and those that don't. You were referencing Lincoln, who even after the Civil War could say, or as the Civil War was coming to a close, could say, with malice toward none and charity towards all. We could go in those directions. Let me give you one more historical piece of uh, rhetoric, which was Robert Kennedy, uh, extemporaneous, one of the three or four best extemporaneous speeches of the latter half of the 20th century, having to tell a black audience in Indianapolis on April 4th, 1968, that Martin Luther King was shot. They didn't know it was up to him to tell them. And he said this, in this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it is perhaps well to ask what kind of nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those who are black, think of the courage it took to say this. For those who are black, considering the evidence there evidently is that there were white people who were responsible for King's death, you can be filled with bitterness, with hatred, and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in great polarization. Black against black, white against white, filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand with compassion and love. One last point. For those of you who are black and are tempted to be filled with hatred and distrust at the injustices of such an act against all white people, 
I can only say that I feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling, for I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. I mean, the beauty of what he intoned there and what did not happen because he was left – there was not enough leadership to back that thought up either in the uh, white communities or in too many of the radicalized black communities in those times, in those days. And so we moved from Martin Luther King to Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers, which I always thought the Black Lives Matter movement was – was, was, A was logical a, extension. Yeah, a recrudescence of. Exactly right. Exactly right. Those that mean it and those that don't. Robert Kennedy meant it. Abraham Lincoln meant it. Biden didn't. They talk about unity as all being the same party, not about when they say no red America, and no blue America. They mean no red America. They mean one color America. And that's this niggling feeling we get. I get that that tells me that this is a this is a quasi totalitarian movement or at least a quasi authoritarian movement that just simply does not think that we have differences of opinion here anymore. As Jefferson said, we have differences of principle, and the Republicans are the party against the principle of the United States of America. And I, I think the way I think of it is when I hear someone utter the word tolerance, mm-hmm. I makes my screen call. I seek to understand the premise from which they mean that. Because I was raised by people who understood the concept of tolerance to mean accepting. Mm-hmm. My mother and father were two of the most accepting people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, in fact, part of the eulogy I gave about my mother in my father's presence, that she had the ability to take people where they were, accept them for who they were, and build relationships based on their differences that could add value uh, to life. And in that context now, tolerance means that I'm tolerant as long as you agree with me. Mm-hmm. And the absence or failure to understand what the concept of being tolerant is, is that you are accepting of someone, accepting of someone who has a very different perspective. And we have lost that in our public square, in our typical debate now, to such a degree that the more extreme issues that we face are intolerable. Mm -hmm. We can't even address them. We can't get to things that should be common to us. How do we address securing our border? Forget about the human beings coming across the border for whatever reason. The drugs and horrific chemicals that are coming into our country through that same system is unaddressed, precisely because... One group of people says that we want the flow of human beings to be open because we like those people. And others say, my view of it, it's not the people I'm concerned about. It is the security of our borders from terrorists, from drugs, from sex trafficking, and that we can talk about how to do that. But in the current environment, you're not allowed to talk about securing the border without being deemed a demon. Mm -hmm. That anyone who would think that securing our nation's border, in contrast to helping other countries secure their border, which the U.S. does frequently, here we are. And we help them secure their borders. Here we are (laughs) spending billions of dollars trying to help Ukraine secure its border from Russia to secure the 
principles put in place by George Herbert Walker Bush and Bill Clinton, who at that time together in that transition gave Kazakhstan and Ukraine security for their nation's boundaries in exchange for both of those countries giving up their nuclear weapons, a concept that Barack Obama quietly snuck away from in 2009 through 2014, and that yet now we're spending billions of dollars trying to secure that border and failing to secure our own from the same terrors, from thieves, from murderers, from drugs entering our country, from sex traffickers bringing young women and young men into our country and taking young men and young women from our country abroad. That happens every day. And we seem not to care. Be right back. Thanks for spending some of your hour with us. There's a um, Talmudic expression that those who have mercy upon the cruel one day end up being cruel to the merciful. And I, I think that's a principle we ought to keep in mind particularly listening to what you just said, Hugh, before the break, about what the importance of a secure border means, secure uh, in our sovereignty and secure from uh, malevolent uh, actors. I wrote a uh, column recently uh, with a friend on uh, policing um, the homeless zone on 9th and Jefferson, and it was about the crimes being committed against the homeless by others who are chronically homeless. That's the greatest crimes that are taking place there, everything from arson to sexual abuse. There was a born-alive infant uh, found burnt to death last week at about 24 weeks of gestation. Um, And I can't tell you how many emails I received saying, all you want to do is lock up those homeless, missing the point entirely. The entire point was to show a sense of civility and a commitment to the victims' rights of the homeless, to protect them, to protect them. I don't live on Ninth Avenue in Jefferson. But the thing is, if that isn't these kinds of these kinds of awful crimes, these kind of awful behaviors aren't arrested, it will spread. And we are now getting stories of it not just being confined. We can talk about the human trafficking. We can talk about the poisoning of children. Um, it's 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 absolutely sad and true that there's really no community that's safe anymore. I'll give you the last 30 seconds. We are at a point in our history where those with some courage may have to take actions that lead to lawsuits. In, for example, the homeless challenges we're facing, municipalities have had their hands tied by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals due to a case coming out of Idaho. Enabling behavior is leaving us with a worse chronic problem than we would have had. And now cities and states are required to enable it. Anyone who thinks that that is kindness is a fool. The old notion that nature may be a little bit cruel so that it may be very kind is important here. We need to impose boundaries on people and limit their human action in some instances to prevent them from harming themselves beyond belief. Anyone who thinks what we're doing to the people who are living at Ninth and Jefferson as kindness should go spend some time there. Hugh, thank you. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth. Class dismissed.